Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 501 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. Thank you so much for all of your well wishes about episode 500 and reaching that milestone. Especially thank you to everyone who said that in person over the weekend. I can't believe how many listeners were at the Northern Beaches Readers Festival, which was a fantastic two-day event that went off to great success. It was the first time it was being held and the organisers have plans to make it an annual event. So I'm already looking forward to next year's event. If you did miss out, make sure it is in your calendar for next year because I think it's a brilliant festival for especially for aspiring and emerging authors. Not that it's even specifically catering to aspiring and emerging authors because it is called a Reader's Festival, but it has turned out that way in my opinion. In fact, I loved it so much that I wrote a blog post on it. Yes, it's called Why I Loved the Northern Beaches Reader's Festival so much. I'll put the link in the show notes. And there's a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the reasons is about the vibe. Now, there's something kind of very laid back. There's a very laid back vibe in the Northern Beaches in Sydney, particularly that far north in Avalon where it's being held. And that kind of added a bit of sparkle to the festival somehow. Somehow the atmosphere just infused itself into the festival. Even, you know, on one of the days it was a bit rainy and that the weather wasn't that great, but it still worked out really well. Um, I think one of the reasons that I think that the vibe was so important because it kind of added this atmosphere and intimacy where fans and readers and aspiring writers of course, were very easily able to connect with their favourite authors or with publishers. And quite frankly, if you're an aspiring author who didn't make it to the festival, it is a shame because you missed out. It was an ideal way to make connections. I witnessed you know, desk drawer writers make real connections with their favourite writers, um, aspiring authors having lunch with best-selling authors, wannabe authors obtain business cards from publishers very easily and students securing mentoring meetups with established authors. I watch that happening everywhere. Um, And a lot of the established authors are often very keen to help others in the industry. So I'm not going to lie, it was a pretty special experience and I wanted to mention that so that you can put it into your diary for next year. Anyway, I just want to also highlight something special coming up starting on Wednesday, the 12th of October for anyone listening who wants to dip their toes in the water of writing by starting with short stories. Some of you are familiar with the fact that we have a short story course at the Australian Writer Centre. Well, this is a special edition of the short story course. It's called Short Story Essentials Special Edition. Um, And it's similar to our regular short story course, but with the added bonus of live Zooms and, of course, the usual one-on-one feedback on your short story when you've finished it. Some of you already love writing short stories, but if you're wondering whether this is something to try, well, let me say that it is short stories are a perfect gateway into writing a novel if you want to, if you think that you'd like to do that one day. But, you know, writing a novel is pretty daunting. It's a huge thing. But when you can start with something manageable and achievable like a short story, suddenly everything else seems possible because 
The course is designed so that you actually complete something, a short story, obviously. And when you do, it will definitely give you that sense of achievement and that knowledge that if you follow a particular path or a particular structure or a particular um, level of accountability, you will get somewhere. Each week in this course, you're guided on exactly what you need to do. Literally, it's step by step. Um, So that if you follow the instructions, you will have a short story done by the end of it. And if you follow the instructions very carefully, you'll have a very good short story done by the end of it. So if you're interested, check it out at writercenter.com.au slash short story. It starts Wednesday, the 12th October, 2022. And of course, stay tuned to our writer in residence this week who can talk about how her short stories, how she started writing short stories, and they ended up being her best-selling novels. Let's move on to our competition this week. Our competition, this is really cool. We have three copies of The Book Eaters. Yes, book eaters, as in people who eat books, by Sun Yi Dean to give away. It's a fantasy horror, a book about stories and fairy tales with family and love at its dark heart. It's perfect for fans of Neil Gaiman or Susanna Clarke. It, hidden across England and Scotland live six old book eater families. The last of their lines, they exist on the fringes of society and subsist on a diet of stories and legends. Children are rare and their numbers have dwindled. So when Devon Fairweather's second child is born a dreaded mind eater, a perversion of her own kind who consumes not stories but the minds and souls of humans, she flees before he can be turned into a weapon for the family. Or worse, living among humans and finding prey for her son, Devon seeks a cure for his hunger, but time is running out. For her family want her back, and with every soul her son consumes, he loses a little more of himself. This is a story of escape, a savage mother's devotion, and a queer love that will electrify readers looking for something beguiling, thrilling, strange, and new. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win for your chance to win this book, The Book Eaters by Sun Yi Dean. Entries close on the 3rd of October. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. Now I want to move on to talk about something that, to be honest, I get slightly irritated by. I get slightly irritated when aspiring authors come up to me at events or, you know, email me or whatever, and they say, oh, well, isn't the publishing industry just a closed shop? Or they say, there's no point because there's so much competition for, you know, for them to put forward their manuscript. Or they say, oh, I'm not sure I should be bothered trying when it seems like you need to know someone to get anywhere. Now, let me make it clear. I'm not irritated by these people, not at all. I'm just irritated that these myths exist because, yeah, sure, it's not the easiest thing in the world, yeah, but it's not a closed shop. And there are actually a lot of opportunities out there. And I know that because every single day, or certainly every single week, I get contacted by a former student who says they've got a book deal. And, so, and they've, they've found a way to get published. They have um, 
submitted, they have submitted unsolicited submissions in many cases, they have potentially met publishers at events like the festival that I just described. And so Alison Tate has this great post on our blog at the Australian Writers' Centre blog called Seven Publishing Opportunities You May Have Missed. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes or you can just check it out on our blog. And she lists a bunch of Australian publishers who are all accepting unsolicited submissions. Do read the article carefully and check out all of the guidelines because they can be very specific, but there are some great opportunities that are available to new and established writers. So, for example, Affirm Press, which is this great um, independent Melbourne-based publisher, accepts manuscript submissions on the first Monday of each month for their general list and quarterly on the first Monday of each new season for their children's and young adult list. So these are unsolicited submissions that they're accepting. Also, the University of Queensland Press, uh, they accept submissions in the first week of the month. So do read your, um, read it, you know, read the blog post carefully. And of course, before you send off your manuscript, you should make sure it is the absolute best it can be. You don't want to send it off half cooked. One of the things that I mentioned um, when I was on the panel on the weekend was that one of the most common things that I hear from publishers for stories that aren't quite the right fit for them is that the story might be fantastic, but the actual writing is what they call not cooked enough. So it just needs more work. And you might think, oh, well, the publisher will love my story so much because it's such a great idea that they're going to work with me (laughs) to make it work. No, it just doesn't happen. You need to get it to the state where it's the best possible version that you believe it can be. And and, because you only have one chance to make a first impression, right? So... You know, you have to get it in tip-top shape. If you've finished a manuscript, first of all, congratulations. But, you know, make sure that you, you, you're polishing it. And the hard work begins now when you've finished your first draft because you have to keep on working on it and making sure that it is cooked enough. We have a great course for that called Cut, Shape, Polish, and it will take you through the editing process step-by-step. It's literally a step-by-step process to make sure that you haven't overlooked any way to make your story the best that it can be. And you'll learn how to get your work to a professional level before you send it to a publisher. So you can check that out at writercenter.com.au slash polish. And also make sure you read the rest of Alison's post to look at uh, all of the other publishing opportunities that she's compiled there. We'll put that link in the show notes because it's a bit long for me to read out here. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are because the word of the week is pollex, P-O-L-L-E-X, pollex. And it is simply your thumb. Well, the dictionary definition is the innermost digit of the forelimb. So yes, essentially in humans, it's the thumb. Now, because it's from Latin, you have to be a bit careful with the plural of pollex because it's not pollexes. It's P-O-L-L-I-C-E-S. P-O-L-L-I-C-E-S. And that's actually from the Latin. Pollexes. 
Policares. I know that sounds weird. You think it's polices or something, but it's Policares. So if you were talking about a clumsy person, you might say they are all Policares. So Latin words that come from Latin are a little bit unusual because a lot of people think it is, you know, when someone passes away, they use the word V-A-L-E. And let's say it's John, they might say it's Vale John. Some people say it's Vale John. Actually, the correct pronunciation is Wale John, because it's from the Latin word Wale. And in Latin, V's are pronounced what? Like W's. Now you can all sleep and win pub trivia. And that was the word of the week. And I have more fun facts about the world of words after we meet our writer in residence. Angela Slater, also known as A.G. Slater, is the author of The Path of Thorns and All the Murmuring Bones. Both are gothic fantasies set in the world that she created for her sourdough and bitterwood collections, which are short stories. She has also collaborated with Mike Mignola on the Hellboy Universe comics in Castle Full of Blackbirds and is a creative writing tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre and her students love her. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. You're more than welcome, Val. Your book, The Path of Thorns, congratulations. You're such an incredible author. Oh, my goodness. For people who haven't got a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? It is about Asha Todd, who arrives at the remote Moorwood Grange, uh, ostensibly to become the governess to three small children. But Asher actually has more secrets even than the family who lives in Moorwood Grange. Uh, and it um, doesn't really go well for anybody. So that's <laughs> what it's about. <laughs> now, how did this idea form? When did this idea come into your head and you realised, I have a story here? Um, I had been thinking a lot about Frankenstein and Jane Eyre and uh, and wondering, you know, what would happen if you if you could get elements of those two stories put together. Uh, that's kind of what happened there. Um, and also as a teenager, I was a huge fan of the uh, gothic drama series Dark Shadows. Um, so my editor, Kath Trackman at, um, at Titan, just sort of went, oh, if there was a gothic Olympics, this would win the gothic Olympics. So there's <laughs> a lot of gothic in there. Fantastic. So you... Uh, have set it in a world that is mesmerising, but one that you're very familiar with. Um, and when you, when the reader steps into this world, they're immersed from minute one. Where did this world come from? Or maybe if you could describe the world to readers, and and then tell us where this world came from. It's uh, it's the world that sort of lives inside my head, which is enough to terrify anybody. Um, which is it's a mashup of the the fairy tales that I was read as a child, and really loved, and also my my love of history. So, um, whenever I'm if I'm, I'm getting some artwork done for for this world, I'll say to Kathleen Jennings, um. Oh, well, you know, I, I like this dress with the Renaissance bodice, but if you can then put a Victorian era skirt on it so I can I can put together all of those things that I I really like and create a new sort of an aesthetic. So I think that's it's key to people recognising the world um, when they've had fairy tales in their lives. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll 
recognize that and also oh yes this looks like on the page the setting's very strong it looks like um a victorian aesthetic oh but that's you know that's a bit middle ages or this is renaissance so there are just those elements of of recognizable items that will put the reader at home uh but then when the fairy tale stuff starts coming to life they go oh oh okay yes we're not we're not in kansas anymore so (laughs) when did you first create this world on paper you know, in, yeah. in and was it with the intention of writing a published novel, or were you just creating the world for you know I, yourself? I was, I was just messing around with fairy tales. I was doing a masters um, at QUT back in twenty two thousand five and up two thousand four actually, and rewriting fairy tales. So that was kind of where I just started dipping into that. And around about 2009, I realised that I had quite a few stories that had the world felt similar. I had built something and I was starting to refer to characters from other stories in these stories. And I eventually ended up going, well, here's, here's four stories that I've written and have been published already and here's another 10 stories that I've written all with intent to be in this world. So I put them together in what's called a mosaic collection um, and that became Sourdough and Other Stories, which was the first um, the first book in this kind of world, in this series, uh, and that was shortlisted for the World Fantasy Award, so something must have been right with it. Um, <laughs> I did a, a second one in 2014, which was the Bitterwood Bible, and it won the World Fantasy Award. Uh, and then after a very long seven-year hiatus of me writing very slowly, um, we brought out The Tallow Wife <clears throat> and Other Tales, uh, which has also been shortlisted for the World Fantasy Award. So those come out in November. Um, and then I hadn't done a full-length novel in the world. And a few years ago <clears throat> we started, you know, talking about it with my agent and new publisher and, uh, we ended up with All the Murmuring Bones, which was <clears throat> released last year. And <clears throat> it's got, sorry, a lot of fairy tale and mermaid mythology in that one. Um, and then uh, The Path of Thorns came along in the ideas box. So, yeah, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I know I'm asking a lot of questions about um you building this world but i think it's so important because it's deeply immersive and believable so when you were creating it for the first time or even you know throughout ongoing because i guess worlds evolve and change do you have your own kind of um dossier or um pinterest board or um, anything of that nature, or does it purely live in your head and you know that this is the word for, you know, whatever, mm. or, or and, and you know that, oh, no, they wouldn't do that, they'd do this, or they wouldn't say that, they'd, they'd say this? Um, it's, it is mostly in my head, um, which, and because I've, I've now done, created so much content in this world, I'm going to need to start putting it together in uh, some kind of dossier, as you said, because um, 
<clears throat> there's a lot of uh, crossing of paths of different characters um, and particularly the the end of All the Murmuring Bones has a lead on into <clears throat> uh, the Tallow Wife and then the Tallow Wife also references uh, another novella called The Bone Lantern and The Bone Lantern references um, The Path of Thorns. So I'm making a huge mess for myself. <laughs> um, I do I do keep, you know, uh, uh, copies of illustrations that are of, of inspiration to me, like for clothing or for faces, um, for locations. You know, if you're describing a particular grove or waterfall or a house whenever I have a um you know a large family <clears throat> mansion in these stories I do spend a lot of time trolling the internet and picking the one that I either like or or I can mash up with another one to to get the strange sort of effect that I that I want um, particularly in all the memoring bones, that was what I, I really was looking for. There's a place in Ireland called um, Hoff's Hoff's Head, something like that, which I turned into Hobbs Head, and um, a few different castles got mashed up from different eras because I wanted this idea of a family who'd been who'd been there for a really long time, and everyone took on their their uh, their obligation or their wish to build a new thing to this house, which made it look very strange indeed. Um, but, yes, I do I do need to <laughs> get a bit more organised. <laughs> uh, I've actually been lucky. One of my readers um, ha- is a huge fan and he's done what I really need, a list of characters for the first three books. Um, wow. The collections. So that's going to help enormously when you're, you have quite a few characters in a book and then you start another book and you don't want to be reusing names because I try to go with uh, an interesting range of names. So as long as mm. I keep track of those, hopefully it'll all be okay. So I want to talk about dialogue because the dialogue that you have <laughs> is um, very much of this world but also very natural and completely believable and I think that's an incredible skill because I read books set in other worlds and sometimes the dialogue's a bit jarring like that. It's it's what you'd say in 2022 <laughs> in, in Sydney, you know. <laughs> so um, in terms of the dialogue, what were did, were you thinking of when you wanted to create um, the way they spoke, which is, which is, you know, completely normal as i say it's not weird or anything it's 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 really of this world but it is different it's it's different um i'm i'm very uh, i have an obsession with communication so how how do you speak to people how do you do your best to influence them or communicate with them so that's something i think that goes into my into my dialogue um and it's it's another one of the things that I'm constantly emphasizing to students is use contractions because your the the language of your world will come through in uh, sometimes how you arrange a sentence um, in the use of 
words that are specific to your world, terms that are specific to your world, but you still need to use contractions because it sounds more natural. It makes the flow of the conversation feel um, a lot smoother. It has a much better pace. Um, so you don't really want your post-apocalyptic werewolf warrior to sound like he's the Dowager Duchess from Downton Abbey. <laughs> uh, or maybe you do, but that's a different kind of book. Um, so it's it's also very much about uh, deep diving into your character and knowing who they are and what they'd say, how they would say it, um, the kind of relationship they have with the person they're speaking with. Um, if it's someone that they don't know very well, um, but they're bickering with them, then they're probably going to dip into insults a fair bit. It will be fast. It won't be uh, long sentences. It will be snippy, snappy dialogue. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's not it's not just slap it on the page and hope for the best. It's a fair bit of, um, well, the first draft brain vomit of, you know, this is what they say and then you come back on your redrafting phase, mm -hmm. editing phase and go, okay, well, definitely she would not say that. She would use this word. So, um, so yes, so it's a matter of crafting over several drafts. So let's talk about deep diving into your character. So when do you do the deep diving and the process of characterization before you even start writing or is it something that occurs during the brain vomit? Um, <laughs> I only really I really only get a a, a slim idea of who the character the other characters are when I'm writing. Um, I always start with my my main character. When they start speaking to me, that's when I know what to what to put down. I can I can see them somewhere and I, and I feel oh well this has legs. Let's see where it goes um and then as i'm moving them through the space they'll be they'll be meeting other people as they go for example when asha arrives at morewood she is <clears throat> she's alone she's just gotten off the carriage she's walking through um the estate along the driveway to get to the big house um and something's following her so this is the start um we get we get an idea of the sort of person she is because I thought I don't, I, I want her to be afraid because this is a weird situation, um, but I don't want her to show it because I want her to be, to, to have her proverbial together enough to know that you don't show fear. Mm. Um, so as she's walking, eventually <laughs> she does get to the house um, and I thought an, an old butler, I want an old butler there and he looks a particular way Um and he will be kind. Um, the kindness won't be inaccurate, but there'll be limits to it. And there'll be there'll be things that she finds out later that suggest, you know, oh, actually, he's not perfect. He's not this um, gentleman who who opened the door for her with with open arms and welcomed her into the, the Morewood household. Um, he too has his foibles. Um, so I I think about them to a certain level, but as I'm moving the character through the story and having them take different actions and putting them to different settings and making decisions, I'm I'm weighing up 
what the other characters around them are like because then you have to go on and think, okay, well, my character has done this. What is this character going to think? How are they going to react? Are they going to prevent, try to prevent it? Um, if they try to prevent it, doesn't make the situation better or worse. So it's, it's a, in my head, it's kind of a, an infernal choose your own adventure. but that's a really interesting point so you say that when you're writing you put your main character in or whatever character in a particular situation and then you're thinking about how the other characters would react to that situation is that what does that look like are you in the middle of writing and then you're thinking okay there are four other characters here that this is going to impact in some way I'm going to think through Mm. each of these interactions or I'm going to think from their point of view um, what's going to happen or is it just something that happens in the background of your head? Like how intentional is this process? Uh, my, mostly it's it's happening in the background. of It's it's the background program in my head because I'm, um, and if I say I've got four, four characters in the scene, um, I'm always aware of not forgetting any of them. So if you you start the scene, say so and so, so and so, so and so is here, they either have to say something or be seen to be having a reaction, or you have to have them leave the room. So you've gotten them off screen. You don't have to mm. worry about them at that stage. But you should pick up with them later because if they've left the room, it's for a reason either because they've, you know, they've left the iron on in the other room or this is a terrible plan and I will have no part of it. Good luck to you. I said good day. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm always thinking about the uh, the function of the scene as well. And it's it's there's definitely less intent of that when I'm doing the brain vomit draft because I'm just trying to get the the story out. Um mm. And it's when it comes back to the the editing phase that I'm going, okay, what do I keep? What do I get rid of? What works best for the story? Because the whole point of this story is that something has to move forward. The story must move forward Mm. in some way, shape or form. Um, Even if you've got your character in a dungeon and they they can't do anything, they don't have a teaspoon, they can't dig their way out, what you what the thing that will move the story forward is what's going on in their head um as they think their way through so um what are they deciding to do are they having a dark night of the soul when they realize they've been a terrible person that's why they're here in the dungeon or are they thinking i'm gonna get all of you when i get out of this damn dungeon (laughs) Uh, and that that speaks very much to your character there. Yes, yes. So let's talk about um, the actual process and time period of the Path of Thorns. So we'll use this book as an example. How long did it take for the brain vomit from when you started and till when you were satisfied with that version, um, the first draft? And did you like how frequently were you writing? Um, the brain vomit. It's. Um, I love how we're calling yeah. it the brain vomit. I mean, <laughs> the brain vomit, which I, you know, I think I stole that term from Sean Williams many years ago uh, when he was teaching me at, at Clarion. But I always think it's the most. It's it's the most accurate description of your first draft. 
Um, and in case you, anyone's not clear, we are talking about the first trial. First trial. It's the first trial. No, you do, do not present your brain vomit to a publisher or, um, or an agent. It will not go well for you. Um, um, it, it's one of those things. I think I, I brain vomited the first 40,000 words uh, probably two years ago and then went into a sort of a hiatus because I was working on edits for um, All the Memoring Bones and then I had to come back to it. So probably all up, it it would have covered two years between the initial 40,000 words to uh, last March 7th when I was doing, doing literally doing my final... Um, fixes and answers to the proofreader for the publisher the, the day before it went off to be typeset and and going. So hang on, that was two years for the whole process. The whole it? process. Okay, so let's just talk about first draft. If you just took your first 40,000 words and then when you finished the, the rest of the first draft, how um, long do you think that took? I think that probably, Without the gap in between. No, without the gap in between. I think that probably would have been about eight months, seven to eight months. Okay, all right. So when you are in the throes of writing that first draft, I'm going to stop myself from calling it both of it. When you're in the throes of writing that first draft, um, is is it something that is that's your singular focus and you carve out, you, you block out time for, you know, for writing and what does your day look like? Like are you a night writer, a day writer, an early morning writer? I think I know the answer to that, but you yes, can yeah. tell <laughs> us. Um, pro- probably when I first started out I was more of a night writer, but as I've gotten further along in my career and this is my 18th year I think that I've been doing this as a, a professional, Um I have had to do more in the day because there are other demands on my time. Um, so if I'm having writing time where I have just blocked out pure writing time, um, I, I wake up and check the emails, check the socials. That takes half an hour um, and I'm very disciplined about it because um, otherwise it can be, you know, the old time suck of Facebook forever. Um and then I will open up the documents. I'll look at my um, spreadsheet, which has the the vague plan on it, which I like to call the bucket of chaos. Um, so basically it just has a framework and then ideas within that. Um, and I will read probably the last 100 words of the chapter I wrote before and then I will go on um i would love to every day just knock over a chapter of 2000 words that doesn't always work um <clears throat> it doesn't always work sitting at the computer because sometimes there's just something that your mind is is catching on that you haven't quite got right yet um the the big thing for me that i always find is that i make my my main characters too good to start out with. Um, what do you mean? Uh, a two, they're, they're, oh, they're without fault. Oh. Uh, and Which is dumb. But, you know, you, you start out, you think, well, I like this character. I want to think the best of them. Um, so that's that's the big process for me is going, I have run into a wall. Clearly I'm, I'm not 
being realistic about this character, about what they do or what they'd say. They're not a saint. So um, I and I do think all of us are faced with situations where we should do something better, but sometimes we just don't because we're having a bad day or the person that we're dealing with has done us dirty in the past. So um, I have to make my character make a bad choice. And mm. the thing is in the story, the consequences of that are generally greater than the consequences of doing the right thing. So that's what pushes your story along. That's the engine of your story, um, creates the conflict, creates the obstacles. So that's what I will have to do is go, right, she's being too nice, have her do something awful, um, make a bad decision. How badly is that going to affect her world? Um, so sometimes that doesn't come sitting at the computer. Sometimes that comes because I, I will go and walk around the block um, talking to myself madly um, and scaring the neighbours. Uh, <laughs> to, to Are you talking to there. yourself? Are you talking? I am. Um, <laughs> the place I used to live a few years back, I would take my phone with me and put on record and do laps of the park um, and just be talking like this. And the great thing about that is that you're free from the backspace key. Um, you're just you're just having a conversation. No one interrupts you. Um, you and then I would go home and I would generally find that the the things I had talked about. I'd worked out the solution because there was nothing else. It was just sort of roaming brain. Um, so you're literally talking to yourself. You're not actually I'm, dictating the story. No, no, I'm literally talking to myself. Val. There's <laughs> nothing. There is nothing dignified about this process. You need to realise that. Um, it's quite mad. <laughs> and, but I would then go home and I could. I would transcribe my notes. And generally, I found that that had fixed. Wow. Problem. Um, or you know what? Some days it's it's a couple of months down the track, and I've had to leave it alone uh, because it was just getting like picking at a saw, and I had to go off do another project. Um, and you'll be sitting in front of the news or Michaela or the latest binge series, and just something in the back brain will go, "Hey, I figured that out." And at which point you have to run downstairs and open up the document and stuff. Isn't it amazing when that happens? It's crazy, oh, isn't it? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's in the shower and that's not yes. helpful to anybody. Um, oh, what, but what unless have you to, have waterproof so, notes. Markers, yes, yeah, waterproof <laughs> notes. And that's the other one I, I often say to to, um, to students, get the, the crayons that they have for kids in the bathtub, keep them in the um, in the shower. Well, there's, a, there's a thing called Aquanotes that's actually just oh, a waterproof wow. notepad. You, know, you would know the full IT, <laughs> IT solution, whereas I'm like, children's crayons in the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not um, uh, technology. It's actual waterproof paper and pen. Someone sent it to me once when I said, oh, I have all these ideas in the shower. And um, Anyway, uh, okay, so. You, when this you finished your first draft, sent it to the publisher. Um, what did the editing process look like? Was there a lot or not much that you had to amend or tweak or change? Um, there was there was nothing big with the structure. 
um, there was one character that I had planned to kill um, and I, I wrote the murder scene um, and that went off in the first draft to my to my publisher and I, I, I had such great sadness about it, uh, but then Kath came back and said, I don't, I don't know if she needs to die. And I, I jumped at that and I went, no, I think you're right. I would really like her to live. Um, so she, she was resurrected. Um, but also, uh, structurally very little changed, but I had, I, and I think, I think it's really important for other writers, newer writers to know this is that we don't produce perfect first drafts. We don't know everything. Um, and I had gotten to the towards the end of the book and was was just exhausted and struggling, so I just started killing characters and putting <laughs> them in the well in the backyard. And I had literally put a note to Kat saying, "I fear there are too many bodies in the back well." She said, "Yes, yes, there are. Let's try and kill them in different ways." I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so that was just a matter of working out how how those characters were actually dealt with. Um, but pretty much all of the characters remained the same in terms of personality, mostly what they did. Um, it was, I, yeah, I, was, I think I was lucky with that one, possibly because I'd taken so long over the manuscript that it was, um, it was very solid. Um, but that being said... You still have a lot of, um, I had probably three developmental edit passes with Kath, my editor. Then I had three copy edit passes with Haley, who is the amazing copy editor who put together a timeline of everything that happened um, and for which all writers are so pathetically grateful they will cry because sometimes you just lose track. It's, it's, you can't <laughs> see the wood for the trees. Um, and then three passes with, uh, the proofreader. Wow. Spelling. Um, and as I said, we, we were, I was literally answering, um, proofreader questions the night before, um, it was going to print. Wow. Uh, so that was, that was the tightest deadline we've, we've worked on with those books. Um, so you've now come to the end of that process. Now, the thing is, like when, for example, I read books set in a contemporary setting, um, I get to the end and, you know, I feel satisfied or, or whatever, but I don't feel kind of a sense of loss because I feel like I'm going to turn the corner and meet someone similar mm-hmm. um, at the local cafe or whatever. <clears throat> I mean, it depends on the book, right? Um, but with your world... When you get to the end of the story, you're, the reader emerges from this world and it's kind of like, oh. So uh, as a writer, is there a, how do you feel at the end when you're no longer in it? Like you, you, it's done and, you know, you've got to come back to Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> come back to the real world. Yeah. I, you, make, you feel very much like the like the reader, and I think it's um, I think it's important that I can I can transmit that sense of loss to my reader. So, so <laughs> I'm suffering. Everyone else must share it with me, um, <laughs> because you've you've lived in this place and you've had you know not necessarily a lovely time, but you've been 
dreaming up your imaginary friends and mm. um, and that's that's an absolute joy to me so the the next thing is to say okay well what is the next book who's um who have i got in this gallery of characters i mean there's 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 still two characters from um the path of thorns that i'm i'm kind of thinking well maybe they maybe they find each other later and it's it's like a a buddy movie kind of you know road movie on a quest but um that's just vague notes in another another shiny notebook at the moment um, so so you haven't developed your next novel yet in your head i have um, oh you have have there's thirty thousand words on the briar book oh. so um uh in which ellie briar is the only daughter born in a family um of witches who has no power um so her her fate is basically to be the administrator to her cousin Audra, who will be the next Briar Witch after their grandmother Gisela dies. Um, but it ends up um oh gosh, there's there's some ghosts, there's some witches, there's a militant church marching on the city of witches. Um there are dancing monument stones. Uh, there's some vampires. There are disappearing families. So there's there's quite a lot happening there, Val. Um, Your brain is a very unusual place to be. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the politest thing ever said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're currently 30,000 words in. Um, well, this is very exciting. So there's when when is this due or when it's, do you think you're going to finish it? Uh, well, in theory it's due in February next year, but I am actually hoping to have it finished by uh, mid-December this year and have it off to uh, Kath to just sort of start that editing process again um and just be a bit ahead of schedule did you always want to be a writer when you were younger like I did right um I was it's it's when I when I started school and dinosaurs walked the earth they (laughs) they had stopped teaching you how to how to spell um they stopped teaching phonetics it was just a a change over and my mum noticed how appalling my spelling was um in grade one so <laughs> uh so she handed me a book and I started reading on my own um she'd always read to me but it was like no actually here here's your here's your gateway drug darling have a book um and that was it for me and that was how I that was largely how I learned to spell it was largely how I developed um a frightening vocabulary um my dad I would I would ask my dad, oh, what does such and such a word mean? He'd just look at me and say, well, you know, the dictionary is over there. Go to the dictionary, which is the Oxford classical. Um, until many, many years later, he asked me what a word meant. And I said, go to the dictionary. <laughs> and he said, well, I just did, but she's not very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so I I always love the idea that oh you know these these are these books they're magic and I wouldn't it be great if I could create one um <clears throat> and for the longest time I just thought that was not a possibility because writers were they had to be magical creatures in order to create these magical amazing things 
Um, and as I got older, I, I realized that actually there's more things that you can do and there are more things in the world that you will dare to do. Um, and I got to the point I was very tired of corporate jobs, which I'd been doing for a very long time, and I thought, you know what, if I don't try this, I'm going to go to my grave with, um, you know, a list of I wish I had done this kind of thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, so when I was 37, I threw in a corporate job and moved back to Brisbane from Sydney and uh, started to learn how to be a writer. So Love it. Love it. And we're all very grateful for it. So this is so exciting. Congratulations on the Path of Thorns. Of course, I always end with what are your top three tips for um, aspiring writers who would love to be writing their own novels and creating their own worlds one day? Top three tips. Okay, I think the first one is read widely uh, because see what is out there in the market and also read other genres because it will teach you how to write other other things really well. Uh, crime will teach you how to plot and to manage suspense. Romance will teach you how to write relationships that feel realistic. Um, so that's number one. <clears throat> number two is network. Uh, even, even in these times of going around with masks, we have more festivals happening. Um, go along and listen to the panels. Go along and meet people, meet other writers, um, because sometimes you will hear about opportunities uh, through other writers, um, mm. and that always helps, I think. And it's not about working out what everyone can do for you. It's about building mutually beneficial relationships. Uh, sometimes you will help someone, sometimes they will help you. Uh, and the last thing is just keep learning. Um, I don't think we ever stop learning. Uh, even, even at my stage, um, there's always something I can, I can pick up from a craft book or from talking to my peers. Um, you know, just rereading, uh, students' work as well and seeing if there are problems in there. Oh, oh, have I done that as well? So I think mm. being aware that you're not always going to know everything. Uh, so keep learning. I love it. Thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on the Path of Thorns. And um, everyone, you should go get yourself a copy. Thank you, Angela. Thank you so much, Val. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue, and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule, and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Margaret Morgan's novel, The Second Cure, is out now through Penguin Books Australia, and it's also being turned into a mini-series. Here's what Margaret says. Hi, my name is Margaret Morgan. I'm an author. Um, I've just had my first novel published and I'm working on my second. I've been a writer all my life, um, either professionally or just for fun, and squeezed into other professions, but um, it's definitely where I'm staying now. I decided to do the course at uh, the Australian Writers' Centre, um, Write Your Novel, the six-month course, 
when a friend told me about it and I realised it was exactly what I needed at that point to help me get the novel written and to give me the kind of support I needed. I was prompted to take the course specifically because I wanted the kind of encouragement and support that a six-month ongoing course would allow me. The tutor in the course was really fantastic, somebody who's written many, many novels herself and um, is very encouraging and really is good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses in writing. One of the impacts that the course has had on me has been to demonstrate to me that I actually can be a writer, can be a novelist specifically. It has allowed me to make connections that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make within the industry. And probably one of the best things about it is the writing group that was formed with a bunch of us in that particular course. And that was like, what, three or four years ago. We're still meeting every month and critiquing each other's work. And it's a really valuable thing. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that I really could be a novelist. And that was such a revelation to me and such a delight. It was something I'd always wanted and suddenly now I've got it. I would say you really should join the Australian Writers' Centre because it's staffed by real professionals. It's a really good, well-structured organisation that's got great courses that are practical as well as inspiring. Anyone who's thinking of doing one should really think about it very seriously because it's a very, very valuable organisation and the courses are terrific. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Angela. Now we're at the end of this week's episode, so I wanted to leave you with this fun fact about the world of words. Did you know that the English word girl used to mean a young person of any gender? So a girl used to be a boy or a girl, just any child. It wasn't used specifically for female child until the 14th century. Similarly, boy used to mean a servant, but around the 14th century came to mean a male child. There you go, the origins of boy and girl. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And of course, you can connect with me on social media within the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Uh, And also connect with me on Instagram, Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter uh, and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.